Menu Stories, a series where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. This is our podcast, and I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein. In this episode, we meet Chef Joan Pan of Joan's Gelato, a gourmet, paleo, and diabetic-friendly gelato. It's gluten-free, cane sugar-free, dairy-free, and top 8 allergen-free. Despite this unusual formula for a traditional dessert, Jones Gelato has developed a strong following of customers who love her product, even if they aren't particularly worried about avoiding dairy or sugar. Chef Joan didn't set out to become a chef from a young age. She studied computer science and was working in corporate finance when she realized she just wasn't happy in her career. She had a quarter-life crisis, as she calls it, and inspired by the culinary talents of her mother, packed her bags and moved to France to become a chef. After developing chronic, debilitating health problems while working in kitchens, Chef Joan tried cutting out inflammatory food from her diet and saw remarkable improvements to her health. She began playing around with a dairy-free and sugar-free ice cream recipe for herself and quickly found a following among a growing community of people with similar nutritional needs. And so Joan's Gelato was born. Let's have a listen. Joan Pan in her kitchen and home studio. R&D kitchen. R&D <laughs> kitchen for Joan's Gelato. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Do you mind introducing yourself and your role here? Sure. I'm Joan of Joan's Gelato. I'm the chef and founder, and I created Joan's Gelato about two years ago in 2014. So Joan's Gelato is a very kind of niche product. It is an organic coconut milk-based gelato that is paleo, cane sugar-free, diabetic-friendly, and free of the topic allergens. We can get into to that a little bit more later. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely curious to hear the inspiration behind it. Maybe before we dive into that, it would be great to hear a little bit more about your background. Are you originally from the area? Yes. So I was born in San Jose, raised in Saratoga. I've been in the city for a couple of years now, so very much a Californian born and bred. To backtrack, I actually used to work in finance. So I worked in corporate finance for about seven years. Um, had a quarter life crisis. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm grateful for you know the experience I had in that career, but I just wasn't happy. And so I just one day dropped everything, sold everything, and then bought a one-way ticket to France to study at Ferrandi, which is a French culinary school. And there I spent about almost two years, you know, going to school, learning French, learning French technique, and working in Michelin restaurants. That's amazing. Yeah. Was this in Paris or? Yeah, this was in Paris. So uh, my stages were in Paris as well as Monton in the south of France. So. That sounds so romantic. <laughs> it was the hardest. Dreamy. I mean, it sounds romantic, but it was the hardest I've ever worked in my life. But it was the best experience I've had in my life. And I think best decision I've ever made. So I've never looked back. So what led up to that? That's a pretty huge life change. So what made you think that, first of all, you needed a break? And second of all, why was culinary school, culinary school in France, at that the solution to that to kind of give you this new direction in your life? What started it was acknowledging my unhappiness in my career back then and thinking, okay, well, I can't just go to work and complain and like feel bad. Like I have to make a change. And I had been cooking since I was five. I grew up with food. Like my mom's an amazing cook. We grew up with food and community and kind of the traditions of like, you know, sitting around the table. And I grew up with amazing stuff like innards and like crazy stuff, which is very much celebrated in the French cuisine as well. I actually did visit a lot of schools in the U.S. and it turned out to be actually more affordable to go to a French school. So it's kind of ironic when you think about that. And the program was shorter. So 
so did you stay in France after you were done with school? I did. I stayed there. I kept extending my visa. I probably stayed an extra eight months than when I was supposed to go back. Were you actively working at different restaurants? I was definitely working a lot. So I worked in three restaurants. One, Elinda Rose, which was my first internship. That was just for a month. And that was really a great experience. I got my butt kicked in that one. It was definitely um, what kind of pushed me to become faster and better as the line cook. The second was at Miazur from Maro Colagreco, that was in the south of France. It really showed me foraging for vegetables that we grew and edible plants and edible flowers. And the third one was Les Ambassadeurs back in Paris, which is at the big hotel, Hotel de Crayon. So it was very much an experience with a huge brigade and at a fancy hotel. And that, that is ironic that this whole experience was more affordable than going to an American culinary school. So you mentioned the food you grew up with was similar to French food. So I grew up with Chinese food, but it's similar in the sense Chinese cuisine uses every part of the animal. Nose the tail thing has become popular in the past few years, but everywhere around the world it's kind of like normal. So it was just very cool to see using the whole part of the animal in a different cuisine. What did your parents think of your decision to go to culinary school? Oh, they were not happy. Um, <laughs> so I'm a first generation Chinese, but I grew up with the traditional Chinese culture of it's good to be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer. And I had actually studied computer science and I was supposed to be an engineer. And, you know, I had this like planned path for me, which at the end of the day led me to be a little bit unhappy. So they were not very happy with my decision. It's very much a cultural thing. And I mean, I understand they want the stability because they had, you know, survived the cultural revolution and they just wanted me to have, you know, a stable life. But at the end of the day, it was it was my happiness that took over that part. <laughs> I can certainly identify with that. My family is Russian and they have similar um, <laughs> opinions about careers. So then what brought you back from France back to America? I actually ended up quitting one of my jobs there. My mom was sick at the time, um, but she's fine now. So I was like, you know, I should probably head home because I kept extending my stay. And so you just came right back to the Bay Area because mm-hmm. that's where she was still? Yeah. Yeah, my whole family's still here. What made you start thinking about the health aspects that clearly play a big role in Jones Gelato. So there was a very, very huge shift in my career. Um, So when I got back to California, I did still work in fine dining, but it was for a private golf course. So I did tasting menus that changed every week. So actually my training is in French savory cuisine and I have basic pastry experience, but it was at this job where I was in charge of making the Ami's Bouche all the way down dessert. So this is where I got to make ice cream every single week. And I did really fun stuff like yogurt and goat cheese and like truffle ice cream. So this was a seasonal job it was nine months and my health increasingly got worse I was always kind of sick in the kitchen I would get 24-hour fevers had really bad inflammation and rhinitis and I just thought it was allergies so I didn't think too much about it but as I got older it got worse and worse so I was like okay maybe it's my lifestyle maybe I'm working too hard in the kitchen you know you work like 80 plus hours a week you do double shifts things like that so I was like okay I'm gonna take a break from the kitchen see what's going on with my health move to front of the house cafe management where I learned about the science of espresso and coffee which I absolutely love to but this change in my lifestyle still didn't decrease any of my health issues so long story short I went to a functional medicine doctor and nutritionist it's like I know you're a chef I know you work in food I know it's part of your identity but have you considered getting off gluten dairy and sugar and I was like no I never even thought about <laughs> I never connected nutrition with health which is really strange because it makes all the sense so at that point in my life I was 
feeling so terrible and I was like I'll just drop anything at this point to feel better so I essentially went on paleo right away dropped sugar and grains and dairy cold turkey went through a terrible withdrawal which is really some like a sugar withdrawal is pretty similar to a drug withdrawal so headaches fatigue shaking all that good stuff it was really intense it was probably the worst withdrawal symptoms my doctor had seen with people that kind of do this detox but within three weeks all my health problems went away wow I mean like I had insomnia I wasn't sleeping which in turn suppressed my immune system which in turn caused all my illnesses after that I created this ice cream actually for myself this wasn't you know this wasn't like this great light bulb moment where I'm like I'm gonna start this business this was like okay I'm gonna try all these alternatives for ice cream and see you know see what I can eat now that I can't have dairy and sugar and at that moment I wasn't eating eggs which is the base of an ice cream so the alternatives to me just lacked a lot of flavor and were just really really high in sugar so it's kind of like okay since we don't have dairy and eggs we're gonna compensate by adding more sugar which to me was not very tasty I started experimenting at home I was like, oh, I can do this. It's no problem. Like, I'm trained, you know. I was making ice cream every week. It was probably a few weeks where I got the base recipe down. I started giving out all my test batches to friends and my doctor's patients who had the same kind of food allergies. And they're like, you need to sell this. There's nothing we can buy in the store. And I was like, that's true. And um, for about a year, I kind of gave out pints, sold it out of my doctor's office, sold it out of the trunk of my car, like just really <laughs> grassroots small food business. And then it was 2014 where I decided to just go full force and turn into like a, a real business. And what was sort of the turning point when you realized it was time to turn it into a business and dedicate all your time to this? I think it was during a transitional period where I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I had dabbled in some consulting work for small businesses. It's like chef consulting for small cafes. And I was like, you know, I, I really like helping people. But at the end of the day, I still want to create a product that you can touch with your hands. I like feeding people. So at that point, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this full time. There's so many people that need this product or just feel like they're missing out. They can still enjoy food. That was the turning point for me. This is Rebecca Goberstein, and you're listening to Menu Stories, a series where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. This is our podcast, and we'll be right back with Chef Joan Pan of Joan's Gelato. So, you are driving around with your gelato in the back of your trunk and selling it. (laughs) I'm like meeting people, because I don't have a store, I didn't have a store for it. Right. I would like advertise it word of mouth, and people would just text me or email me, hey, can we meet up somewhere, like... I'll meet you in the parking lot or I'll meet you at your place. And like, I just put it in my trunk and be like, how many pints do you want? I think everyone kind of starts like making it at home, like and selling it illegally. <laughs> We're not supposed to do that, but you know. Oh, right. Cause you're supposed to have some sort it's of a food test. license yeah, yeah. or yeah. Like, whatnot. I have um, a gluten-free kitchen. It's fine. How did you come to become more truly legitimate, legal business and start distributing? So I rented a kitchen in Bayview through Eclectic Cookery and I was making it myself. So that was like probably the first eight months of moving my business to the city and doing full time. So I was making it myself, but at the same time doing everything else. So I was like, okay, well, I'm spending all this time in the kitchen. Who's selling my product for me? Because I'm not doing it (laughs) because I'm in the kitchen. And so I I had to figure out a way 
And at the time I didn't have like a ton of capital. I couldn't just hire someone as a new business with, you know, five clients buying gelato sporadically. So when I actually found out about co-packing from Sadie from Bread Seriously, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her product. Awesome. Gluten-free sourdough. Best out there. Hi, Sadie. Um, (laughs) um, So when she told me about co-packing, I was just like mind blown. I was like, what is this co-packing thing? You know, you mean I don't have to like hire staff and if someone doesn't show up, I don't have to cover their shift, things like that. I had some great experiences managing staff and terrible experiences. So I was like, okay, what is the most efficient and quickest way I can scale? And so I think about nine months after I was doing everything myself, I moved into co-packing. We heard a little bit about what co-packing is when we featured Omnivore. Can you share a little bit more about what co-packing is and how that works? So you're essentially a reseller of your own product. So you're paying someone to make your product and then buying it back, if that makes sense. Got it. And so it's like contracting out production. So you don't have to hire, you know, whole staff and do the management of the stuff, which I see is a good route if if you want to scale quickly, especially for wholesale businesses. So did you start kind of knocking on doors at grocery stores to get this distributed? Do you sell mostly online? How did you sort of get distribution? Um, for, for accounts, I just showed up whenever I could in the morning. Usually buyers are there until noon. Mm-hmm. So I would show up and be like, hey, can I talk to a buyer and just give them a sample? Like, hey, um, I'm a small company in San Francisco. And then they would just order through me directly. And I started with the small mom and pop supermarkets like Sagona's Farmer's Market and Palo Alto. And I would deliver through back of my trunk again. It never (laughs) ends. (laughs) I think when I received distribution, I was already in 30 supermarkets and I was delivering out of my car, (laughs) my little Fiat. And I got distribution once I got into Whole Foods because distributors won't take you on unless you have a number of accounts. Interesting. So once I got, um, I launched into Whole Foods this March actually. And congratulations out of most of the stores in NorCal. And that's when I got a distributor and was able to, you know, distribute and scale up quicker. So how did you get these grocers to literally buy into the fact that they needed to sell this ice cream? How did you sort of convince them that this was a good idea? They just need to taste the product at the end of the day. I mean, also because my product is the only one out there that is paleo, it's vegan, it's cane sugar-free, and it's diabetic-friendly, as well as being free of the top eight allergens. And when I talk about allergens, I'm talking about soy, peanuts, nuts, dairy, and eggs. So for them, they see the trends. They see, okay, paleo is a trend, but also the increase in food allergies, it's not a trend. It's happening. It's happening worldwide. A lot of these smaller gourmet mom and pop specialty shops understand the need for this. It sounds like you didn't really meet a lot of resistance when you were trying to sell this in. It depends. It's tricky. Some buyers just, I mean, if you think about buyers, they get hundreds of vendors coming at them every day, stopping by with samples and trying to sell the product within 30 seconds. I would say it was a little bit easier to get into these mom and pop shops that love to support local and they're like very happy and welcoming to see like a local company. I think with the larger markets, with the corporate buyers, it's a little bit harder to get through to them. So how do you, yeah. what do you think got you through to the bigger accounts? Persistence. <laughs> You have to be so persistent, bordering annoying, but like not becoming too annoying, if that makes sense. (laughs) I mean, it's sales, right? Yeah. So what makes your product gelato and not ice cream? 
So originally, my company was called Joan Ice Cream, and I had finished all the R&D, and I finished all the branding and the logos, and then uh, when I went for label approvals, they're like, oh, by F definition, this is not ice cream. You have to change your entire branding. It's gelato. I was like, oh, okay. Because um, <laughs> by de- Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for telling me this. Um, so ice cream, by definition, is made with dairy. So there's a percentage of cream and milk to make it ice cream. So technically, it's not ice cream, which is true. Gelato tends to have very little overrun, and overrun is air so you don't put a lot of air whereas ice cream can be up to 50 60 or more so gelato has very very little air which makes it really dense actually by the way that i make it and the amount of overrun in there it is gelato my product's very dense and also needs to be eaten at a higher temperature so when you know when you're in italy and you see the gelato it's very creamy um, they actually keep their freezers at a higher temperature so if you were to freeze gelato in like a commercial freezer it freezes super hard i tend to tell my customers hey you know this is gelato it's not ice cream so let it sit for 10 minutes until you get that creamy gelato consistency. Interesting. Yeah, mm. I guess that is true. I mean, mm. I always thought that was just the European style of not eating things that are too cold. Yeah. <laughs> like they hate ice. Yeah. And <laughs> that's, so true, that's true. <laughs> so that makes sense that it's yeah. actually meant to be eaten at a slightly warmer temperature. Also the percentage of fat in there too. So gelato has less fat than ice cream. Because of the less amount of cream or? Yeah. Got so. it. And most gelatos are usually made with all milk. So mine's 100% coconut milk. I don't add coconut cream or anything. Milk versus cream, you mean? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, some companies do it, but um, I guess by definition, it would be all milk. So what's your operation like now, today, now that you've reached a higher amount of distribution and you're on Whole Foods, what's your operation like now and how's it different from your days when you're selling one off through your trunk direct to five different customers? It's been a really interesting journey because I'd come from kind of the artisanal small batch making of things in restaurants and going to this wholesale business is a completely different business model, which honestly, I didn't know what I was getting into. So my operations now are extremely different from when I started. I do have people helping me in this, but I'm essentially still a one-woman team. So I I see myself very much on the business side now, just trying to manage operations with my production kitchen. I'm still in charge of the R&D, so I'm constantly recipe testing. Now that I have a distributor, it's more management and making sure things go smoothly and being a professional firefighter, (laughs) as I like to call it. Just, I think, generally starting your own business. Number one thing you need to be good at is finding a solution for last-minute emergencies. (laughs) So... It's hard, but I I love what I'm doing. When you say it was eye-opening and you didn't really know what you were getting into, what stands out in that experience most? From from an R&D standpoint, coming from, like when I started, I had like 15 flavors, you know, and I was like writing the flavors on the labels. And then going into wholesale where you want to go into the mainstream market and have flavors that are attractive to the masses, you kind of have to cut off all the fun stuff and start with the basics. So for me to be like, oh, I have guava and persimmon and things like that, I'm like, oh, but you know, what are the masses going to want? Vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. And so having to kind of adjust from kind of restaurant mode to wholesale food business for the masses was an adjustment. You know, cutting out all these flavors hurt a little bit, but I was like, it's okay. You know, I can bring them back on later. What Um, flavors are you most excited to bring about? I have a really good matcha. So I have a masala chai. That's awesome. So all my products have real fruit and real tea. Like I don't do syrups. I don't do any of that weird fake stuff. Um, So I had to choose between matcha green tea and masala chai. And I was like, okay, this is going to be a tough one. Some other things that I'm thinking about, but not ready to release. Okay, got it. (laughs) But hopefully 2017. 
Love. New flavors. New flavors, maybe something else. We'll see. Oh, okay, cool. All right. Yeah. So so I was going to ask you what's next, but it sounds like that's a little under wraps at this point. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll check back with you to see what else you're working on. So what's been the most challenging thing throughout this whole process and this transition that you made from being in corporate finance to becoming a professional chef and opening up your own food business? On the R&D side, the most challenging thing has been making something that had no soy, eggs, and sugar, and dairy and making it taste good. Also, not having any gums or stabilizers in my product and having the proper texture has been very challenging. I've redone my recipe at least eight times and taken out major ingredients and replaced it with another, but I got it down now. <laughs> so um, that's that's been challenging. And uh, getting people to understand what goes into my product, it's at a higher price point as it's a gourmet product. And so having people understand it's free of all these things and challenging conventional thinking that healthy alternatives are tasteless. Be like, just taste it, you know. I know it doesn't have X, Y, and Z. And one of the number one questions questions I get is, wait, it doesn't have sugar dairy. Is it good? I'm like, just taste it. You know, just yeah. taste it. And on the business side of things, I think the most challenging thing is temper control and distribution. It's something I didn't think too much about, but um, frozen wholesale business is probably the hardest in terms of all the other shelf stable or refrigerated products. Just even five degree change in temperature from transport could affect the texture. So wow, it's little things like that you try to fix and dial in. And also, um, some things are just out of your control. Like if it gets delivered and someone doesn't stock it, and it's sitting out there for yeah. an hour. You're like, okay, well, how do I control that? So those are those are definitely challenges on the business side of things. Yeah, mm-hmm. kind of like once it's out of your control, how mm-hmm. do you still make sure that the product remains high quality and in yeah. the conditions it needs to be? I didn't even think about that. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I could see that yeah. being very frustrating. What's been the most rewarding thing about everything you've been able to accomplish so far? Uh, the most rewarding thing is just getting emails oh my gosh I've been waiting for you my whole life like I can't eat anything and I can finally have this and not feel that they're missing out even just one comment like that makes all the lead sweat tears all worth it one woman I think she lived in like Santa Rosa or somewhere up north and she had driven two hours down south that time I was only in like 15 20 supermarkets so she drove all the way down south to find my gelato and she bought 12 containers for herself and her family because her daughter was on paleo and had food allergies and their kids had food allergies and she's like I had to stock up and I'm so happy that you're using birch tree xylitol which is a sweetener that I use because some of them were diabetic some of them had food allergies and they could all have gelato again that was really sweet that was really sweet kind of mellow that family to sort of enjoy dessert all together without making the kids feel bad because I know when kids have food allergies and especially if it's one kid or even if it's a parent (laughs) and then they have to eat different food from everybody else it can make them feel isolated and different exactly yes and my dad has gluten intolerance and I have celiac in my family mm-hmm. and I spent a lot of time working in the diabetes world oh, um, wow. long ago yeah. Yeah. and so I just got to know a lot about the psychological impact of what it feels like to not be able to eat quote normal things and yeah. just not think about that I could see that being a really meaningful thing to people and families yeah and and I'm sure through all your podcasts and every day do you realize that food is community and when the whole gluten-free revolution happened it became more mainstream about what less than 10 years ago and I remember back then when I was working in food and I was like 
wait, what's gluten? Like people can't eat this. Like I could never stop eating gluten. You know, the, the term glutard and how like <laughs> chefs would be like, oh gosh, we got another gluten free. At the time I was kind of like that too until it happened to me. And I was like, oh my God, I can't have gluten. Yeah. I've turned into this glutard. And then, but it makes you more sensitive. You can't really make fun of people for having food allergies. And nowadays it doesn't really happen. People are more accepting of it. But at the end of the day, everyone deserves to feel the community around a table eating food and having all these alternatives that taste good. Like you were talking about, it makes people not feel isolated when they're at a party. So it kind of closes that gap. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and inviting us into your home. We're excited to see some of the gelato making process. Of course. Thanks for having me. You just heard the 44th episode of Menu Stories, an ongoing series of multimedia stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. If you enjoyed this story, please spread the word to your friends about the work we do. Subscribe to the Menu Stories series on menustories.com so you can get the next episode delivered to your inbox. On our website, you'll also find the complete Jones Gelato episode with pictures and a behind-the-scenes video. You can find us on Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram at Menu Stories, and on Twitter, we're at Menu underscore Stories. This podcast is also available on iTunes. This episode was produced and photographed by yours truly, with photo editing done by Monica Lowe, and all video work was filmed and produced by Patrick Wong. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein, and until next time, happy eating. Happy eating.